Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. All right, recording started. Uh, another audio signal with uh, Marco Cipelli usually, or sometimes it's me and Sean, you know who Sean is, the co-founder of ITSP Magazine with me. And this is a channel where we usually step away from uh, technology, cybersecurity, and society, but you also sometimes go back into that. How can you not talk about technology? or society these days, cybersecurity, we stay away from it. Uh, today, we're talking about a, a book, and uh, it's a book that it's definitely not about technology, although, I don't know, I may be wrong about that. We'll ask the author about that, which is uh, here with us. His name is Todd Gross. Uh, welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you have an interesting uh, artistic background that uh, then bleeded into writing, but it still comes from a different kind of art. And so I'm not good at reading bios, so I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our audience, and then we'll, we'll talk about the book or anything that comes in our mind. It's freestyle. Sure. sure. Well, I've been in the arts forever. <laughs> um, you know, I started... Uh, uh, in bands and performing and doing all those sorts of things um, in New York City at a time where uh, indie bands were, you know, well, you were in vogue in the sense that, as I put in my bio, uh, you get a gig at like CBGB's or one of the downtown clubs, but they want to test you first to see if you could draw a crowd. So you would get 2.30 in the morning on a Tuesday to come there and perform. And so what that meant was, you know, you had to get all your songs together. You had to go down at 6.30 in the evening for a sound check. So you unload all your equipment. You set up all your equipment. Then you have to break down your equipment and put it to the side because they have five bands. And then, you know, come home, go home, eat, try to nap, sleep, get, get yourself going. Come there around 12, 1 o'clock. Go on at 2.30 for 45 minutes. Then you got to break down all the equipment, put them in the truck, bring them back to the studio. It's just, you know, you see the sunrise at times. And then you have to go to work. So, uh it was because uh, that wasn't the first job, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that was, you know, that's pursuing art for art's yeah. sake or whatever. So yeah. we came close to making it sort of, okay. but uh, you know, at a certain point, you're standing there at two o'clock in the morning playing and going, "Oh, is this how I want to live the rest of my life here?" <laughs> and so, uh, so then we moved on to. Well, I was always writing. I was always writing. Okay. I, All I, right. I, uh, I've written two novels before. Uh, the first one, actually, uh, Alfred Knopf almost bought. And then the second one, when I was moving, inadvertently, I put it in garbage bags because there were so many pages. And they threw it out. So and this was before computers. So oh, God. I had no backup. Oh, I know. No so, backup. <laughs> so 
So that propelled me. Um, I said, oh my God. That, and, and so that propelled me into theater because I was thinking you could spend so many years on this and it's such a lonely proposition. It's just you and, the, and yourself at night, whatever, whatever you can write. So I got involved in theater and that's a much more interactive process. So you, uh, I was hooked up with Ensemble Studio Theater in New York, which is where a bunch of writers and some dramaturges, so you have, and, and actors. So the actors read the scripts, use the first act, and then everyone comments, and then you go back and you rework it and you bring it back again. So it's, you're workshopping these things and getting them rolling. And, uh, and out of that time period, I wrote Them Within Us, which is a brilliant play, everybody. It's, it's a great play. Um, <laughs> go it's, see uh, it. Can, it's, can uh, people go watch it now? Anyway? I know. They can't watch it, but they can buy it from... Uh, All right. They okay. can go online and they can find it with that uh, Broadway play publishing. All so right. it's I, I was writing all these uh, uh, human, human dramas, these kitchen dramas, as they call them, and I was fast finding out that you couldn't get a producer to produce these things. They just... You know, unless you were Tom Stoppard or somebody famous, you just weren't going to get anywhere. It just was just the nature of the beast. And at that time, it was a big Star Trek and sci-fi fan, and aficionado, that stuff. And I said, you know, I was thinking commercially now, there's no sci-fi plays out there. Now, why is that? And, you know, one of the obvious reasons is the amount of money it would take to do pyrotechnics, you know, to do special effects. It just didn't just didn't work. But then I got this aha moment of how this could be portrayed. And so I, it's a romantic, Them Within Us is romantic comedy with a sci-fi twist. And the initial blurb was troubled lovers, Roger and Susan visit rural Vermont to work on their relationship. Possession by aliens was not on their list of problems until they got there. So what happens is it explores how do you keep a love relationship vital and alive into this, in, in this world. And, um, and it explored that it was a tour de force for two actors who have to be themselves and then metaphors metamorphosize into the higher parts of themselves and back again. And so very simply, now Roger, who's bored with Susan, everything's the same. They've been together for seven years. Suddenly she's herself, but then she's more than what she was. And he mm -hmm. finds himself reattracted to her. And ultimately, you know, it raises the question, how do you keep a love relationship vital and alive? And, you know, you have to allow for growth. You have to keep looking for the alien within each of you, essentially. So hmm. anyway, so it was... Um, Sounds pretty deep. Well, you know, it was a lot of fun, you know, it's, uh, and it has its esoteric underpinnings. Mm -hmm. So that was good. But, yeah. And then it was optioned twice for the movies at that time. Uh, it ran... Uh, It ran three months off Broadway. It was supposed to move to a larger Broadway house, but then the producer disappeared and it's just the whole drama in and of itself. <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you should write a drama about that. Yeah, drama. you can write a drama about that. It's like, <laughs> it's like we were having problems. This is just a simple practical story. We're having problems with publicity. The publicity guy was not doing his job. So they, the producer brought in another woman to, uh, who was, had looked like she was going to really do a great job for the show. And, After halftime, after when she went for the break, and she was really enjoying it up to that point, she tripped and fell down the stairs and broke her nose. So now here she is, you know, this is she's lying on the floor in the lobby. They're waiting for the ambulance. Ugh. 
it was a disaster, but be that as it may. Well, so fast forward, and now you have a book that is not actually a play. And, uh, and it sounds, I didn't read the book, but I did read the, the excerpt of it. And right. it, it, there is, a, is definitely some spirituality and depth into, into this. And it's called right. uh, Loi in the Forest of the Mind. So even in the title, you know you're going to go deep right. into, into the right. mind. So is it this the next step of uh, your, uh, your, your path into art from a musician of an alternative uh, rock band and to write in something on the alternative side of Broadway and, and here? Yes, it's kind of mirrors my own journey, I think, okay. actually, if I think about it. And um, I think that as I was writing this, I, well, I, I remember being influenced by books like um, Dune, for example, and maybe mm -hmm. not necessarily the first book, but it, the series of six books. Um, I would be reading something uh, and, and my bones would be shaking, they'd be vibrating. And I didn't know even what that was, but this was a visceral experience. Whatever he was writing, it was having an effect on me. I was becoming one with nature or one with all the world. There was something happening. And then a page or two later, it was gone. And then I couldn't remember why it was to begin with, because it was not something that could go through the intellectual processes. It was something of being that he was transmitting. So that was very interesting to me. And I said, oh, my God, I, I want to do that. I want to understand that. I want to expand upon that. And I set out with all these what if premises. Um, you know, what if we if humans could live to our real potential? What if the sixth, our sixth sense was as, as prevalent and accessible as all of our other senses? You know, what insights would we have? What would we know now then that we don't know now? So, um, so I wrote the first book, um, you know, its first draft was basically the size of a large telephone book. If anyone remembers what telephone books were. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So, you know, you could probably uh, hold up a building. And, um, and when I got to the end of it, I, I started discovering certain kinds of esoteric literature in the process of like Buddhism, Kabbalah, Sufism, et cetera, et cetera, all the isms, uh, the fourth way, um, even, um, in psychology, uh, cognitive therapeutic techniques were coming on board. And I, and I began to realize, oh my God, this is what I'm, I'm sort of trying to write this stuff, but I don't know what I'm writing. And so I had to step back for a minute. There, there's this interesting idea that to have understanding, to truly understand something, you require two things. You require knowledge, but you also require being. And if you don't have one or the other, you will never have true understanding. So in a, a simple example would be, you could learn to ride a bike on, online, I guess, on the internet, you could learn to ride a bike. But now when you're given a real bike in real life, well, what the hell am I doing here? So it, would, so it requires an interaction. One is cognitive, but the other one is experience. And then you, have, then you have true understanding. So now I'm reading all these things, I'm beginning and establishing practices for myself. I'm realizing, wow, I gotta start all over again because now I'm actually getting knowledge. I've kind of laid this stuff out organically. But now I need to really, now it needs to be crafted in a way that it can be transmitted and that just the average person can get it, that their bones can vibrate or I don't know if they'll vibrate, but um, they'll get a sense of it. So, mm -hmm. oh, I, get, I get the idea. So it seems to me that you, you could have gone to way with this kind of thinking. One, you actually write a, a 
a book that is a, I don't know, a self growth experience, more of a spiritual experience in terms of not having a narrative attached to it, or express all of this through a fiction uh, right. work. So tell, tell me more about this, this process of creating a story to, to actually get to these points and these thoughts that you're feeling. So that was interesting. I mean, I, I had to lay out, um, lay out a possibility. Uh, and the, the easiest way to do that would be to, to kind of go into the, the future a bit. The thing about fantasy is that you kind of leave logical mind behind a little bit. You have what if premises and then you expand from there. So I started with that. Um, I started with the people who, um, the reloy, it, it, so, so there's a cataclysmic event, the world is destroyed, a small group of people survive and evolve. Stripped of all modern technology, um, they begin to develop their experience of the world. And they're born blind, they don't gain sight till they reach puberty. Consequently, their experience of the world is based on all their other senses. So they're highly aware of many different things. When sight comes, it's the least important. Uh, for them. And so riffing with that, I mean, that was like, like kind of fun, like the sound of light. What time is it? They can just listen to the sound and know what time it is. Or the fragrance of thought. They can lean forward and go, hey, or oh. So it's just that kind of uh, awareness. But then the question was, if they have that kind of awareness, what psychologically do they possess? Maybe that we don't know, or maybe that's at the tip of our fingers or something. So once I got through that and developed, and you know, I didn't invent anything. There's nothing new to say. There's just new ways of saying old things. So cobbling together ancient wisdom and all these different isms, et cetera, um, I came up with a way that they could interrelate, they could express to themselves, they could evolve. And we as a reader can kind of grow with that and open our mind to it. So I think that was the thing that was most important to me, actually this underlying drive to bring a, a new narrative to the world, or maybe not a new narrative, just an old narrative, but make it accessible to people and start a new dialogue and change the world. You, you know, we have all these narratives exist nowadays. And what's amazing to me is nobody talks about the reason we have narratives. That is to say the human heart, the underlying, actually the, the, uh, the neuroscientists do. They have all of the stuff to show you that basically, oh yeah, you think you're conscious, you think you know what you're doing. Uh, no, it's your unconscious that's driving the show. And if people say, well, I don't know, what do you mean? And so the simplest thing, and I actually use this analogy in the book, one of the characters says to another. Um, so, so the simplest analogy is, um, okay, so we believe we're conscious and we know what we're doing. So let me ask you a question. Do you know what your next thought is going to be? And typically, you kind of don't know until it comes and then you know but something knows something is creating these internal narratives that are driving you forward so what happens is in our lives we look for these internal the what how whatever we're feeling in a particular way we look for a narrative to explain it i mean that's what the body does to create homeostasis it's this sort of blind organism trying to figure out what the world is not directly intersecting with the world or interceding with the world so 
you have people that are angry and so maybe they'll find a politician that expresses anger that aligns with their internal chemistry and wham, then they have all the opinions and the narration. But in fact, it's coming from something else. They're in fact being driven uh, as opposed to driving. And so we really, you know, we need to open these things up. It's like, would you repair your car with a philosophy book or a, a religious book or a novel? Would you try to repair your car? No, you need a manual. So we kind of need a, a narrative, a manual that we can express. Um, psychology tries to work with us um, where the observer self is the one that it's the coin of the realm. So when you're young, you're just insane. You're driven by your hormones. You have no observer self over time. You go, oh, you know, that didn't really work so good for me. Who am I again? And so they try, and also cognitive techniques, try to get you to think about things in a different way, meaning take yourself out from the machinations of your biochemical body and that's generating all these things and find another narrative that suits you, that's more aligned to who you are separate from this craziness. So swinging back to the book, <laughs> that, the, that's all that underlying stuff that I was fascinated with and that you know, I got to work on again and again and again. I mean, it's, there's no writers, they're just rewriters. And so uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, I'm very proud of the work. I mean, I get there and it builds and builds and builds and it uncovers more and more realms within us. And, um, and hopefully readers will experience that as well. My mother was, uh, 80, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead, I'll wait. So I know that like my mother was, uh, who read, read the third book when she was 80. The old books are written, they just, they just stack, stagger them when they come out. Okay. And at the, when she was reading the third book, she was, oh, this book is making me so dizzy. And I thought, okay, it's working because <laughs> that's her experience. But the truth is, she was, she was resonating in a way that was outside her comfort zone. She was being picked mm -hmm. out of her normal life and, and lofted into spiritual life. Mm. And so, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm fascinated because I'm a very you know, philosophical person. So I, I like to, to talk about, you know, even my background, it's sociology and, and sociology okay. communication. But I, 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 I reflect on how technology, for example, interact with our society. And, and where I want to go here is that one of the premises that I'm understanding of the book is that they get stripped, this, this, this race or whatever right. you define it, this tribe, uh, group of people, they're stripped by all technology. Correct. Was that for you a, a requisite necessary so that we somehow could discover this sixth sense and get in touch with who we really are. So do, do you see technology as a, some kind of a disturbance in, in, in our vibe? Oh boy. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not saying we should go back to being barefoot in diapers and live in caves, but mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and there's nothing to stop any of this. This is just going to continue on and on, but, um, I mean, just a, a simple way of describing things it, it, and to see how technology is shifting and changing the paradigm of what it is to be human. Really, we're in the process of a cybernetic engagement. We're in that, we're firmly entrenched in that. Um, 
And, and it's been my observation that if, um, if electricity, if the electronic world, the technological world had an intention to cover, uh, overcome man, they've already won. They've, it's already won. It's got the software. Mm. We're addicted to our, our, our devices. In the old days, you had oral tradition. It was a very robust thing. And so we hear, yes, oral tradition. Sure, I'm a, I'm a caveman. I'm an Indian, whatever. You know, we're hunting. We have primitive technology. Um, we need to, I need to learn how to make a bow. Well, you know, the bow master is this old guy over there. So um, it forces me and he to interact and have an exchange. And yeah, of course, we get that. We all get that. You need the older people to tell you what to do because they have the experience, et cetera. And then, then over time, but what we don't realize is the emotional bond that is created. It's not just knowledge. It's being. It's being with you. We have this interaction. We have this connection to one another that builds and grows over time and years. So the youth did not necessarily recommend, rec, uh, they did not um, ignore or uh, the older people. They saw that they were a reservoir of knowledge in a particular way. So it was a great thing for the old people. It gave them a purpose and a thing to do to give back and connect. And the younger people then had a healthy respect for them. And so there was this amazing interaction back and forth, this emotional exchange, like I say. Nowadays, yeah, you, you, you go to an older person, a kid will, younger person will go to an older person for, uh, you know, where's this again? Or what do I do? But mostly they go to their hand and who's laying in their hand is Google. So it's right there for them. And, and they have an emotional rea they have an emotional reaction, emotional connection to their, 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 their technology, their phone. You know, I mean, I have an emotional attachment to my phone. Every time I get a ding, it's like I'm Pavlov's dog. I'm, I'm salivating. <laughs> oh, who's calling me? Whatever. Yeah. So it's madness. It's madness. So how do we yeah. remember who we are through all that? That's the real question. Hmm. And, and I guess you, when, you, when you create a story it, in the narrative, you use, you kind of go to the extreme, right? You go to the hyperboles of what, what it is so that you can make a point. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to detach yourself completely, unplug the electricity and all right. of that, but it's a metaphor to explain that you kind of have to balance things, I guess. That's uh, that's the idea. So tell me, who is Lloyd, the the main character of of your first uh, book? So who is this person? So okay, so Lloyd, um, I kind of wanted to not have something concrete for the mind to grab hold of. You know, there's this saying that, uh, and actually have all these sayings. Um, uh, in with the mind, there is one truth with spirit, there's a multitude. So, you know what? There's no one truth about Loy. Loy was a state of being. It's not a person. It's kind of a state of being. It's an awareness. It's a place. So the first book is entitled Loy. The second book, so that people don't get confused and they can know the order, the second book is Loy and Beyond. And then the mm. third book is Loy, Beyond, and Back. So, okay. all right. so we have this, it's very simple steps. And, you know, maybe people hate that. I don't know. I just, it just, it just seemed natural. This is the progression. This is how it goes. And so, uh, so it's not a place. It's a place. It's an idea. It's a way of being. It's whatever you want to make of it. Okay. So it, it's, it's what the story rotate around, but we don't, we don't really know what, what kind of entity this is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's us. It's, it's our true selves, who we are. Okay. Who we are, truly are. Okay. That's interesting. So, 
I noted one of the notes that you exchanged with me before we, we got together and have this conversation um, was about maybe talking about the writer dilemma and uh, what what I think is very fascinating. I mean, you're talking with someone that writes a lot and that in my mind I wrote already a lot of books, but I actually didn't. And they're very, you know, in the fantasy realm. But then I ended up writing other things for right, work right. mostly, you know, as, you know, we get dragged away. Right. So I think every writer has his own dilemma in a way, how you fit into your routine, into your life, into your job, which one is your real job? Like what is for you the, the writer dilemma? What's your dilemma? Time, probably getting enough time to do it. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's always the struggle. I mean, writing is a whole organic process. And I mean, the key, one of the things I had to learn was not to get so depressed you know, I mean, so, I mean, I, originally I was thinking, originally I had this analogy that this is what writing is. You bang your head against the wall of your imagination. And depending upon which cracks first, the wall or your head, that's what you're left with for the day. So you're already feeling, ah, amazing. And then you got some amazing, or you got an amazing headache. And then typically what happens is you left, it was amazing. And you come back and you're looking and going, ah, this is garbage. What was I thinking? So there's this whole process um, it's very important to kind of figure out a way of balancing the emotions with this stuff and kind of putting them to the side. I mean, you're still going to have, here's the thing, you're still going to have emotions. Your body's going to create emotions. It's going to create thoughts. You're still going to have these things. Your opportunity is changing your relationship to them. So rather than oh, I'm depressed and I'm miserable, I'm expressing it. If I realize I can step aside myself, if I can put myself in the third person, I can say, oh, Todd, you're... Todd's really depressed right now, but you know, tomorrow will be different. And and put yourself in that narrative, then you can like make use of it and move forward. Hmm. Um, so the so the process though, it's you know, it's a lot of throwing a lot of stuff against the wall to see what sticks. Hemingway wrote all of these interesting. Uh, I, I once went into this bookstore and I saw Hemingway's writings about writing, and like he had this hmm. whole stuff. And I said, ah. Oh, you know, it's $4. I don't have the money right now. And I'll leave it. But I look, glanced through it. I said, oh, that's interesting. And then I said, you know, I want that book. I went back. It was gone. And I could never figure out what the title was. But he had all these tricks, which were very good. I'll share some with you. For example, he often would fall asleep while he's because you're going in this imaginative dreamlike state. And before you know it, half an hour has gone by and your head's in this, in, on, the, on the desk. Um, so he wrote standing up. And mm. so, and I verified that works. You got to get like a tall dresser. So you're standing up and uh, I mean, it seems silly and stupid, but actually it works. Um, mm. uh, another thing he did, another trick he did was when he was in this full blown role um, and he's ready to stop, he's got to leave, whatever the story is, he would not leave until he had the next idea. So since the muse is with him and on his shoulder and the ideas are flowing, he would come up with one more idea, which then he would develop the next time he sat down. So he didn't have to spend 45 minutes banging his head against that wall and, and come up with something. So um, we know how, I mean, how let, let, let me, let me ask you one thing that I, I think it, it goes to any form of art. And I'm, I'm going to ask you because you as a musician and then dealing with, with theater and I think it applies to painters or sculpture or whatever. Where do you position yourself between 
doing something that pleases you. And that's for me a good dilemma, like a big dilemma. And, and actually writing something that you know it's commercially valuable. So what I'm saying is you do in a, in a selfish, um, fulfilling pleasure as writing or painting, or even if you get your instrument, which I still don't know which one is, but, you know, and play for yourself. And then eventually I hope people like it, but screw it. I'm not going to do it for others. Or you're like, you know, I need to make a living out of this and I want to reach as many people as possible. And you find that kind of compromise. What, what's your take yeah, on that? It's a good question. It's always a struggle. You know, early on I said, ah, oh, you know what, this is me. This is it. This is that, you know, why they don't, I don't care if they don't like it. Mm-hmm. But then after a while I said, you know, I'm writing to be read. I'm not writing to be uh, ignored. So mm-hmm. I'm so, not playing for myself. I'm not right, writing I'm not, for myself. Right. And if you're just writing for yourself, it's, you know, masturbatory, you know, I mean, I mean, it's great. Yeah. It feels good, but you know, whatever it is. So, yep. so yeah, so you really sort of have to really struggle with finding that balance between, you know, what is commercial and what is not. And, you know, you really need, at least I needed a lot of feedback from a lot of different people. Early on, I was overwriting, meaning I had this idea. I wanted you to get the idea. So the premise, so what I was doing was just sit down, lean back, open your mouth. Here it all comes. Here's the funnel and I'm shoving it down so you don't miss a trick. Mm-hmm. And, and people were, this is why these manuscripts were two, 250,000 words. And people are like, oh my God. So then I read, it's interesting. I read um, short stories by Raymond Carver. And... Um, he had this one short story, I don't remember the name of it, where it was all about this, the, uh, the subtext and the emotion that was going underneath f- that was driving the story. And yet there was no one, not one emotional reference. So the way he positioned it, one watched, one experienced, and it elicited one's own emotional intelligence. And by doing that, you became a participant in it. So it wasn't like, shut up and take the medicine. It was like, here we go. Join us on this venture. And that was a great lesson. I mean, I had to then rewrite everything, but <laughs> and we, we learned how to rewrite everything. But um, mm. yeah, so that's what I said. You got to just keep on back and forthing it until you, until you get where you're both pleased, where your reader's pleased and where you're pleased. Mm. So what, when, when is it you decide it's good enough? Probably, you know, probably good enough for the people that need to listen, watch, read versus if I yeah. just listen to myself, I'm I'm gonna rewrite it a million time and, and never gonna never gonna publish it. <laughs> well, where's I mean, the that, line? Right, where's the line? I mean that's another thing. So yeah. I went with the consensus view. Mm. So um well with my beta readers or you know early readers, I'd I'd have them rate them because everyone's gonna say something different and it's more about yeah. their own perspective, but <laughs> numbers are maybe less uh uh less um uh, they're more specific and people can, you know, there's less words and they like on a one to 10, where would you place this? Oh, I placed it at a six and I'm going six. Oh, okay. Uh, Barely. Know, I need nines and tens here. So, um, so then it was like, and like, so you, you might get a consensus of view that somewhere in these chapters, there's a six. Like I remember in plays, for example, because the plays, there's a lot of, right there when you're developing them you've got writers you've got directors actors and all 
giving you their view. And typically what would happen, for example, they'd say, oh, you know, scene one was good, but scene two, you know, when grandma came in, I don't know, lost me. And then someone else say, mm. I, I like scene one and scene two, you know, I didn't have a problem with grandpa, but I had a problem with the uncle or, uh, you know, seeing to the, but, but you get a consent, something was wrong. Now it's up to the writer to figure it out. Something is not trans, translating and everyone's gonna have a different point of view what they think it is. So you have to kind of figure out, okay, what's not happening here? Um, and, I, and I found, um, I don't know if this is more about writing again, but so there's a, there's a discipline that breaks um, so, uh, break us, breaks us down into uh, that we're four brain beings. We have four brains that are operating simultaneously. This is a, a narrative, a, a filter, is a way of looking at things. So there's an intellectual brain, there's an emotional brain, there's a moving brain, and then there's um, an intellectual brain. So these are four mouths to be fed. So while you're writing, if, if someone is emotionally centered, for example, say that's that's where they see the world more than let's say a, an action adventure moving person. If they're not being fed, they're gonna drop out. Mm. If you're an action adventure person and, and it's this all motion, well, you're gonna drop out. So you have to find the balance in the scenes. I say, okay, what's not being fed here? If people are kind of dropping out, something is not being fed. And so it's a good way of looking at things. You know, they say you have to develop character through action and action through character. And so that's this, this, this device that you can use to try to figure out what's wrong or change mm. it back. That's really cool. Um, I, I love how you're, you know, very, very philosophical and deep into the analysis of writing. I mean, obviously you've gone through that and you thought about <laughs> it quite a bit. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the last question uh, before we run out of time, which again, it's kind of connected to, the one I asked you before, like you just write for yourself or you write for the public, but you already answered to that. So let's go with who, who was your audience that you were picturing in your mind when you were writing this? Like, okay, I, I know some people, you can't please everyone, right? But you just right, said that. Right, right, so right. Who, who will be this book for? Ideally, everyone, okay, get right, that. Right, but correct, correct. In your head, is there a target that you think will, will be more or less interested in this, in this book? You know, when I was young, uh, action adventure was it. I, that's all I needed. Mm -hmm. As I got older, I realized, you know what, there's more to life than that, and that the ultimate battle is the psychological. And that's what is the most interesting and will carry the day. Now, I've had an eight-year-old read the book and speedy time and he loved the action adventure stuff the mm. human emotional stuff I, he just sped, sped read it and was was gone and then i've had other people that have read it slowly that have responded to it who is the audience who's going to sit down and read this book that's a good question i mean i definitely think you know it, it will resonate with older people because they're used to reading things a little slower than at today's pace where you know every two pages has got to be a climax mm, um yeah. But, but, you know, it's if you slow down and ease into it, you know, it will move you on different levels. So, A, everybody, B, somebody who's got a little life under their belt, I think they'll get the most out of it. You can be eight years old and like the monster parts and this and that. So, but, um, yeah, so I think older and someone who's, you know, if it, if it it's, 
in a lot of the the uh, the reviews I've been getting, you know, it makes it makes them think. It makes it gives them a different perspective of things, which mm -hmm. is which is interesting to them. So, yeah, yeah. No, it may, it makes sense, and I I, I think I, I'm interested after this conversation about reading the book. I think I could definitely resonate with me, and I agree with you when you say things like everybody. I mean, there's got to be a little bit for for everyone. And then you can take what you want. I mean, you can watch The Matrix, the original one, let's say, right. because of the action. Right. But there's people that see a lot of philosophy behind, behind all of too. that. Right. So we, right. which one are you going to walk away? We have no clue of what the reason why The Matrix <laughs> exists or or the message beyond the Dune or other sci-fi uh, piece of, uh, of writing and, and that, that become movies or or you're going to look at for the, the war fight at the end, <laughs> you know, right. in Star Wars, for example. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's interesting. Look, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad that we made it happen. And uh, I think a lot of people can think about writing, can think about the, the spirituality that you have expressed here, but I think it will be a good opportunity to actually read the book and then maybe even rethink about the, the stuff that we discussed about. So um, I want to thank you so much for this, Todd, and, uh, and invite everybody to check the notes for the episode where there will be linked to your website, to the book. And uh, I'm always a big promoter of, of literature and art in general. And um, that's it. Thank you great. so much. Listen, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. And I hope everybody else enjoyed it. If they're watching the video or listening to the audiobook of this, so subscribe, stay tuned, share it, and uh, we'll catch up on the next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.